0: And it's a small thing in the grand scheme of things. But if you screw up body condition, you're going to hinder your productivity and thus profitability of your salary.
1: Welcome to Inside the Helix, a podcast presentation from DNA Genetics. Throughout this series, we focus on all things that matter to the pork industry. You'll hear from our award-winning team of geneticists, veterinarians, animal care providers, nutritionists, and other industry-leading experts. We'll explore pig production from genetic improvement all the way to meat quality. Listen along as we take a deep dive inside the DNA Helix. Brady McNeil, Multiplication Business Lead with DNA Genetics, is joining us again for another episode of Inside the Helix. And today we're going to spend some time talking about some of the different research projects, specifically some body condition scoring research that's been going on within the company. Brady, thanks for joining us today. Yeah,
0: happy to be here, Curtis. Uh, Looking forward to having this discussion.
1: Yeah, as we mentioned before, you are originally from Iowa, Grand Mound, Iowa to be specific. In proximity, where is that located within the state of Iowa?
0: Yeah, it's in the, the eastern portion of the state there along the Illinois border. Uh, if you're familiar with where the Quad Cities are, uh, just just north of there.
1: Yeah, and so you've been in Columbus now for a number of years. Do you make it home quite often?
0: Yeah, so I've been in Columbus now eight years, but uh, still try to make it home to help out with the family farm as much as I can. we got harvest season coming up, and so hopefully I can make it back a weekend or two
1: and, and help out, uh, maybe drive the grain cart every now and then. We'll see what happens. So you mentioned eight years, and just as a refresher, your position has changed a bit while you were with DNA Genetics. You are now the multiplication business lead. How did that kind of evolve, and how did you kind of get to where you are right now? So when I first started with DNA, it was shortly after
0: the uh, breakup from Denmark, and so we were our own standalone genetics company. As such, we needed to leverage our multiplication data within our nucleus system. And so my job was to help incorporate those multipliers into our genetic database. So working with the different record systems and the multipliers to get them incorporated. So did that for a couple of years. Then after that moved into more of a tech service role. So four or five years there of working with producers, solving their problems, working with our third party trials. And then over the last two years have been focused directly on multiplication and really helping those multipliers be succe- as successful as possible and then serving as that liaison between the multipliers and the customers when any issues arise.
1: One of the fun, I, I assume it's one of the fun projects that you're working on. You're part of the research team within DNA Genetics. What kinds of research has DNA been working on?
0: That is an awesome question. And it's something that I've truly enjoyed being a part of over the last couple of years is As DNA genetics, as pill and family farms, we have access to, to this wonderful resource of a 70,000 sow research facility, basically, is we're able to go to all these different sow farms and implement different research trials. But at the same time, we have a nucleus where we're measuring every single animal almost every day on, you know, specific traits. So we're able to combine both our commercial system as well as the nucleus system. But then we have a sow research farm and we have grow finish research barns where we can collect some of the specific data. And what's been fun is it's not just, hey, we're we're not just going and doing grow finish research projects. We're looking at sow farm research projects. We're looking at nursery finish grow uh, research projects. We're looking at health type of trials and we're looking at nutrition type of trials. And then we are a genetics company. And so we're, we're also doing genetic trials as well. Uh, whether that be looking at specific subpopulations of our direct population. So what does a high IMF population look like? What does this specific allele frequency do from a disease resistance standpoint? So we're able to kind of look at it from a big picture perspective. But then what I find really exciting from a tech service is we go into these different producers and we say, hey, these are the DNA recommendations. And they say, why? Well, some of those reasons, were 10, 15, 20 years old. And so as we take a step back, we realize, hey, maybe we need to redo some of those research projects. Genetics is always changing. We're, we're pushing that pig forward. And so one of the biggest changes that we've made to our genetic program over the last three to five years is birth weight. Well, increasing the birth weight dramatically changes how we need to manage these pigs on a day one perspective. Do we need to do split suckling as much? Do we need to do drying as much? What do we need to do to maximize the profitability of these these producers? And so we're 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 going back and we're reanalyzing or we're redoing all of these trials that set up our initial SOPs. And so some of those include: Hey, should we be giving creep feed at the end of the lactation phase to these pigs to get them off to a good start? Short answer: Yes. We'll probably have somebody on at a different point in time to really dive into that one. But if you have a DNA sired offspring, the pigs really respond to giving a little creep feed at the end of the lactation phase.
1: Yeah, So these are really producer oriented yes. types of trials.
0: Yes. Very producer oriented. And that's why, and that's one of the things that being tied to the producer or production system, we are able to have trials that we can implement the next day. But then from DNA's perspective, we can get them out, share them with the industry and they are very producer oriented. Um, they're not just uh, more academic in nature. Uh, yeah. So they're ones that can be implemented like i mentioned, we're answering the questions that the producers on the south farms want to know, the producers in the barns want to know.
1: I should mention that we are recording this podcast just a few days before the layman swine conference in Minneapolis. And at this event, Brady, you're going to be presenting a poster and a discussion on body condition scoring, which was one of those producer oriented trials that you're working on. You also mentioned creep feeding. What other types of trials is DNA genetics working on?
0: Yeah. So. With Layman coming up, we'll have three trials that we're going to be presenting at the Layman Swine Conference. Uh, so the first one, the creep feeding trial that I mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking today about body condition scoring. And then another one that's really exciting is, hey, should we be getting these sows up in farrowing? And what I think is really unique is we're not just looking at the metrics of productivity. We're looking at how much does it cost to get that sow up? So we're measuring how much time does it take for that producer to get those sows up? When they enter the room, exit the room. And so should we be just getting every sow up once a day at the beginning of the day? Or should we be getting sows up three times a day? What is the best kind of bang for our buck from a labor perspective? Because we all know that labor is getting harder and harder to find. But we still want to have that maximized throughput through that sow farm and and wean as many pigs and as high quality pigs as we can. And so that's what that trial is really looking at is what is the best way to manage that female lactation.
1: So these research projects that you mentioned are a lot of these done internally or are there any opportunities where DNA genetics partners with other organizations or other companies as well? It's a great question. And we have a lot of abilities internally to do
0: sow farm research, grow finish research, but there are certain questions that just work better for us to answer in a producer system. And they're also just shared interest with different production systems. So we will do research in grow, finish barns with a lot of different research companies and production systems. And it could be as simple as, Hey, we want to compare, you know, this subpopulation of your sire line, or it could get to more of a complex nutrition by sire line interaction um, and and look at a lot of different factors. And so it's really exciting to partner with these different groups because they all have their different drivers of profitability as well. And so we realize that what we think is really important to producer, maybe isn't as important as we think. And so by partnering with these groups, we can figure out what really moves the needle for them.
1: So let's get to body condition scoring. That's our primary topic that we were going to talk about today. Why is this so important?
0: Body condition is one of the most important drivers of productivity and profitability for a farm producer. And as you take a step back, that's a really big statement, but it's one of those things that it gets overlooked so often. I was when you
1: say, it seems like it's it's kind of a small thing. It's but. a very
0: small thing in the grand scheme of things. But if you screw up body condition, you're going to hinder your productivity and thus profitability of your sow unit. And so, one of the main things that DNA Tech Service, what we're doing is when we're going out and visiting producers, is hey, your sows are either in the right condition or they're in the wrong condition, and it's. A simple conversation, but it can have huge results to the overall profitability of that operation.
1: Right. You don't want a sow that's that's overconditioned or underconditioned. Mm-hmm. So why why is that important? Because I, I imagine that that costs money to a producer either way.
0: Yeah, it's huge driver. And when we take a step back and and look at the numbers on what do heavy conditioned sows cost a production system we're, we're, our numbers would show $50 per sow per year is that cost to a production system by overfeeding those females. Now that's wastage feed because those sows just don't need that extra feed. But then also it's those heavy sows going to lactation. They don't eat as well. If they don't eat as well, they don't put out as much wean weight and then they don't breed back in as efficient a manner. And so we really want to maximize the, the lactation feed intake of these females. And that's really the main driver of productivity is if we can get these females to eat a lot of feed. Uh, it's really unique is if we look at how much of that sow eat in lactation and then compare it to her subsequent litter size, there's a direct correlation and it's not necessarily linear. It seems like there's a, a threshold and that thresholds right around that 14 pound number. And so if we can get sow farms to average over 14 pounds of lactation intake, that's where that jump in subsequent litter size is. And as we look at back fat losses and weight losses, that threshold seems to be from a negative energy state to a positive energy state also seems to be right around that 14 pound number. So what that would mean is when that sow goes from positive energy to negative energy or from negative energy to positive energy, in this case, we see a a jump in subsequent litter size. And so whatever we can do from a management perspective to get those females to hit that 14 pound number, is absolutely critical.
1: So if body condition scoring is so important, why do we really need to talk about it with producers? I mean, shouldn't they already know?
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where as we talked about earlier, it seems like such a small thing. And yeah. it's one of those things where in the grand scheme of things, hey, you're worried about getting pigs moved to that that nursery finish. You're worried about, hey, are do we have these rooms power washed for that next group of sows to come in? There's so many little things going on in a sow farm that take priority over body condition scoring. Hey, they have feed, they have water are in a good environment. They'll be able to survive to the next day. So it's sometimes the last thing that really gets checked for the day is, are these sows in the right body condition? Are we giving them the right amount of feed? And so what, when we come, when we're talking about it, one of the discussion points that usually comes in is, hey, our genetics require a different breeding or feeding level than what some other genetic lines do. And so if you are a sow farm producer and you have multiple genetic lines in your herd, it can be a challenge to really manage that feed consumption correctly because every line is going to be a touch more efficient or less efficient. So they're going to require more feed or less, but then they're also going to want to go into farrowing at a different back fat level. And so if you look at the recommendations from different genetic companies, we have recommendations on, Hey, the sow should go into lactation at this back fat level, or they should be at, you know, this body condition score going into lactation and everyone's going to be just a touch different. And that's where some of the confusion can really come into play is we'll go to a sow farm producer and say, Hey, we think you should do this. And they say, well, the, the nutritionist that was just here, that's used to working with other genetic lines, they've been telling us to do this. And so it's a, it's a challenge to make sure that that female's really managed to, to her own genetic line. And that's part of what your tech service from your genetic company can really provide. And so whatever genetics you have, Make sure you reach out to your account leader. Make sure you reach out to your tech service team and say, hey, wh- how should we be feeding these females? When I'd imagine
1: too, sometimes people tend to like heavier animals.
0: Yeah, if you think about it, how many times do you see obese dogs? All or the time. <laughs> heavy conditioned dogs. I mean, people just like the, to overfeed their animals because they think it makes them happy. Yeah. Uh, if we take a step back and, and think about the dairy industry, how many fat dairy cows do you see? Almost none. Right. Uh, there's a reason for that. The dairy industry's figured out To maximize the lactation ability of those females, they got to be in what we would consider an athletic body condition. And what is a sow? It's basically a dairy cow during that lactation phase. And so we want that sow to be in athletic condition so that way they can maximize their lactation feed intake. And so all the feed that they're consuming is going to the pigs and they're not pulling back that off of themselves to then provide nutrients to those piglets.
1: Brady, tell me about the latest DNA Genetics research trial that's focused on body condition.
0: Yeah, really, the, the purpose for us to be here today on this podcast is to talk about this latest trial that we've been doing. And there's been other trials that have done very similar things. And so what we did was we compared the, the Knauer cell caliper. So Dr. Knauer at NC State developed this caliper to measure the width uh, at the midline of these females at the last rib. And that is an indicator of the body condition level of those females. And it's been very successful and it's a great tool for different production systems. There are other production systems that would use a visual body condition score. So that's a technician on the farm is doing a a visual or actually a hands-on scoring of those females to see how much fat do they have. And that would be something that we feel very strongly about. If you're going to do, make sure it's the same person each and every time doing it and they are the only ones allowed to set the feed boxes. Cause if you have other people come in and start adjusting feed boxes, you can really get kind of out of line. And then the third item is an ultrasound back, fat, kind of the, the gold standard, Hey, this is what it is. There's no arguing. It's this back. fat. now we did do it at the, uh, between the 10th and 11th rib, which is how we would do a uh, ultrasound on our uh, pigs at off test in our nucleus farms. But some production systems will use more of a back fat on the, at the last rib. And so some slight variations that you might see from what we're reporting on that, but just wanted to give that disclaimer on where we actually measured the, the back fat. And so what was unique about this trial is we took all of those measurements in addition to feedbox setting at day 30, 60, 90, and then at farrowing, and then looked at the correlations between those and then how those impacted the reproductive results of the sows as they actually went into farrowing. And so we had around 380 sows in this trial. It's was at a farm that batch ferros a hundred a month. And so it was over four months, four batches. Uh, So we had a nice representative, but the one disclaimer, I guess I should give is these females were in a pretty tight back fat level. And so there wasn't a lot of variation and they were all more on the athletic side. And so, you know, maybe some of those differences that we might've picked up if we had a wider range of, of back fats, maybe we didn't necessarily see, but we'll still have some nice results to talk about.
1: So now are these three methods I I imagine a producer is choosing one over the other some are maybe easier some require more advanced training or technology is is that kind of the the differences between those three Great question
0: and every production system has their kind of thought process on yeah. that very question There are production systems that are using all three of them So you think the ultrasound hey that's that's a lot of technology why why would a production system use that There are production systems that are using that because It is the gold standard there's no argument this is what the back fat of that female is especially if we're going into a group sow housing system with esfs we can plug that back fat into a calculation and then that esf will feed that sow specifically to that level now you think about the canal cell caliper it's very repeatable and anybody can use it it you put it on the cell at the last rib as long as you can find the last rib correctly anybody can use that particular piece of technology. And so that's why a lot of systems have went to it because it's repeatable and it's easy to execute. And then the last one is the visual or actually the hands-on body condition scoring method. And this is one that internally our production system would use. And if we go back historically, most people would have used before the Knauer Caliper came out. Uh, it is a great way if you have a trained technician, so somebody that can do it repeatably,
1: I was going to say, it probably really matters that you have that same person that's evaluating each animal time after time. Correct.
0: You can't just have, you know, the person who just started at the farm start doing body condition measurement. It takes some training, but once you get that person trained and their eyes set, it can be a great method to use. Uh, And then, like I said, we really prefer the farm manager or the gestation lead to be the person that does it. And they are the person that truly owns that process.
1: So in your research, how did these three methods correlate with each other? So great question.
0: So as we actually break into how they related to each other and we look at, okay, how do the three methods correlate? The canal cell caliper and body condition measurement were the two that were the most highly correlated, which I think makes sense because the canal cell caliper measures the width of that top line and a visual body condition measurement is going to take some of that width into effect. And so I think it makes sense that, hey, those two are, are fairly well correlated. What was interesting is if we consider back fat, that ultrasonic back fat to be the gold standard, body condition scoring actually had a higher correlation with that measurement than what the Canower cell caliper did. I think what was also very interesting with that particular topic was there was a difference over time. And so the Canower cell caliper and back fat had a difference whether we were looking at day 30, 60, 90, or farrowing. And so they were actually the least correlated at day 60. Now, is this have something to do with how that sow's just overall skeleton and back fat levels kind of adjust during the course of their gestation phase? Probably, but I I don't know if we necessarily, you know, care too much on that specific difference, just kind of an interesting note on that, that data set.
1: So now then for the most important part, was there a significant effect from the different measurements taken on the reproductive performance?
0: As we started looking at the, the results, and I, I should preface this with saying, hey, the, I mentioned earlier, these females went into farrowing at a pretty lean state. So at day 30, these females were 0.58 uh, inches of back fat, or right around that, that 15 millimeters of back fat. And then at farrowing, they entered farrowing at around 0.51 inches, around 13 millimeters of back fat. And so these females actually lost some back fat from day 30 to farrowing. But part of the reason why, if we, just take a second to talk about our DNA recommendations our our goal is to put that female in a positive energy state for that first 30 days of gestation. We want to get that female to set her embryos in a positive energy state. And then from day 30 to farrowing, that's when we can really adjust and tighten things down and fine tune that body fat level. So we can enter farrowing at the right, right threshold. And so I think we saw that in this trial very, very nicely. Um, But just initially you might say, Hey, these females were losing weight in gestation or losing fat in gestation. And there's nothing wrong with that specific thing, but as we start looking at day thirty, we actually did pick up a response on the feeder setting at day thirty on live pigs at day five, which is one of the traits that is actually in our indexes, is and it's very correlated with number weaned, so we use that as a correlated trait with number weaned, Uh, and then lactation average daily feed intake. And so what was interesting is those females that we fed more at day thirty had a higher LP five level, but then a lower lactation average daily feed intake. And that was actually almost a one-to-one relationship. So if we gave them a pound more of gestation feed intake at day 30, they had a one pound reduction per day in lactation. But on the gestation side to the live pigs at day five, we picked around a three quarters of a pig improvement for each additional pound that we fed them from day 30 to day 60. Now, I don't know if this is truly representative uh, of this trial, or we just weren't able to pull out that difference from the previous litter. And so if you think about it, why are females being fed more at day 30? Because that's what these females really are. Well, the females that are going to be fed more at day 30 are ones that are going to be a touch thinner. Well, the females that are touch thinner are, are one of two things. They either nursed a very large litter or they didn't eat very well in lactation. And so those two items are then directly what we saw in the subsequent litter size. And so maybe it's just a sow effect that, Hey, this sow has more pigs and she just gets nursed down a little bit or she doesn't eat as well. And so I I don't know if that day 30 result really tells us a whole lot, but just more of an interesting finding. But as we go to the day 90 and then farrowing, this is where, Hey, we really want that female to be the right energy state as we go into farrowing. So at day 90, both body condition score and feeder setting, were negatively correlated with lactation average daily feed intake and so the heavier those females were at day 90 the less feed that they were going to eat in lactation and i i think this makes sense it's what we've always said and that's why we feel so strongly about pushing that gestation feed correctly to make sure we're maximizing lactation average daily feed intake the other thing is you got to think about a seasonality effect and so whether you're a producer in the south the north Either way, in the summertime, it's going to be really hot. We really want to make sure those females are going in athletic at farrowing. Right. Well, then, yeah, let's talk about that farrowing then. What,
1: what were you seeing at farrowing?
0: Yeah, so as we get into farrowing, uh, interestingly enough, the ultrasound back fat, the only one that was correlated was with stillborns, uh, which makes sense. If you're going to have a heavy-conditioned female, you're going to see a response uh, negatively towards stillborns. But then the canal cell caliper and body condition scoring were both negatively associated with LP five. So those females that were heavier entering lactation had a lower number of pigs alive on them at day five. Now this takes into account stillborns. It takes into account total born, cross fostering, and pre mortality. So it it's a trait that you know maybe necessarily um, by itself we, we got to look at the big picture. So we didn't see a, an impact on stillborns with these, but we maybe picked up some of that that difference there at LP five.
1: Any other ancillary data that we can can deduce from this trial?
0: Yeah, and as we look at how should we maximize productivity of these females, one of the great pieces of data that we were able to pull is okay, how truly how much back fat should these females have when they enter farrowing, and then how what weight should they be when they enter farrowing? Because uh, that's always the question: is you know what weight should they be at at farrowing? Because um, then we can back calculate to breeding weights, and so if we think about our gilts, we want our gilts to be under 425 pounds at farrowing. If we start getting over that point, uh, we are going to have a decrease in just overall lactation feed intake. We're going to have an increase in stillborns and we're not able to really maximize the productivity of that female. And to do this, we have to have a great gilt development program in place. And so if we have a good guilt development program, we can get those gilts bred at the appropriate age and weight range Targeting that 300 and 320 pounds so that we can farrow them under that 425. And then we want that back fat level to be 0.4 to 0.6 inches or around 11 to 16 millimeters. Uh, And that's truly where the sweet spot is for the guilt. As we look at the older parity females, now they're matured. They've added some body size. We're going to have a heavier weight female. We want those to enter farrowing between 400 and 475 pounds. And then the exact same back fat level, 11 to 16 millimeters or 0.4 to 0.6 inches of back fat at that 10th to 11th rib. Um, And so as we start looking at herds, you know, most people aren't going to go ahead and weigh sows into farrowing. We're not going to back fat sows into farrowing, but we have an idea of, okay, if we know where we want that guilt to be, we need to have that guilt bred up by a certain weight. And so a lot of people will weigh gilts at mating. And so that can help kind of spur that guilt development program and just goes to show the value of a guilt development program. So we can get that guilt into the system, and farrow her at an appropriate weight.
1: Now you mentioned a lot of different topics today that we're going to be getting into in future episodes, especially as we get into DNA's five pillars and guilt development and those kinds of things in the next several months. But ultimate take home message today: if you had to sum up our conversation today about the importance of body condition scoring, what is a final message that you would want to leave with producers about the importance of body condition scoring? So specifically related to the
0: trial no matter what body condition scoring method that you are doing, just do one, execute it consistently and repeatably. And so in this trial, we did every 30 days, really encourage producers to do it every two weeks, if at all possible. And that way you can fine tune those females and have them enter lactation at the right body condition. So that way you can maximize their lactation feed intake. You can minimize their pre-wean mortality, minimize their stillborns, and then maximize the overall pigs total born on that next subsequent litter. And so whatever you're doing method-wise from an hour cell caliper, visual back fat, or ultrasonic back fat, pick one, stick to it, and implement it consistently.
1: Very good information. Thank you very much, Brady McNeil, Multiplication Business Lead with DNA Genetics. For Inside the Helix and DNA Genetics, I'm Curtis Harms. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Helix, presented by DNA Genetics. Inside the Helix is released every other Tuesday and is focused on what matters to the swine industry. To catch up on previous episodes, visit us online at dnaswinegenetics.com or find us at your favorite podcast streaming platforms. You can also keep up with DNA Genetics throughout the year by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. For Inside the Helix, I'm Curtis Harms.